On July 8, 1776, the ringing of a bell was heard in the State House yard in Philadelphia. The bell was rung to summon the citizens of Philadelphia to hear the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence. The bell used on that day is known as the Liberty Bell. It's become an American icon and a symbol of freedom. It was last rung 70 years after the first time it was rung in 1846 in commemorating the birthday of George Washington. And it cracked that day. Because of that, the Liberty Bell stopped ringing. But what's more fascinating is the inscription that's on the Liberty Bell. Even though the vast majority of the American people and the rest of the world don't know, the inscription that's on the bell is the call to begin the year of Jubilee. The inscription is taken from Leviticus 25, the passage Pastor Dodds just read in your hearing. And on the Liberty Bell are these words. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Again, that's Leviticus 25. Tonight we're going to look at our 13th type in our series. We're going to look at the Old Testament type of the year of Jubilee that is fulfilled in Christ. And I want to remind you, and I've done this each week, because I want this to have a a cumulative effect where you start seeing Wow, on every page of the Bible, there are pictures, sometimes multiple pictures on every page of Christ. And so let me remind you where we've been. On week one, we looked at Adam, the type of Jesus, the federal head of a race, the one who acts for others. Second week, we looked at the ark, that type of the one place to hide when the wrath of God is poured out. In week three, we looked at Christ typified in the saga of Abraham and his son Isaac. In week four, we looked at Joseph, the rejected kinsman and future savior. In week five, the Passover lamb. In week six, we looked at Jonah, the prophet, being swallowed by the great fish and then coming out three days later as a clear type of Jesus in his resurrection. Jesus said as much. In seventh week, we looked at Samson as a type of Christ. In the eighth, manna as a type of Christ, where Jesus said he's the bread of life. The ninth week, we looked at the rock that poured forth living water. And Paul just says, the rock was Christ in 1 Corinthians 10. And then in week 10, we looked at the office of the high priest, how every detail from his his clothing to his actions, all of that points directly to Christ. And then week 11, we looked at Joshua. Same name as Jesus, victorious conqueror, law keeper, willingness to stand alone for righteousness, and the deliverer of sinners. And last week, very intentionally, on our 12th week, we looked at an unusual type, a number, the number 12. And we traced this through the 12 sons of Abraham, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, until we saw it uh, uh, ending at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, where every element of the New Jerusalem is some dimension of 12. And we saw that all through the Bible, this This type, this number, always points to the fullness of God's people. But tonight we're going to look at something unusual as a type, and that is a day. Actually, it's a a year, not a day. And that is the year of Jubilee. And I want to remind you that types are always in the Old Testament prophetic. They are pointing towards something that's going to happen in the New Covenant. And types are divinely designed. They're not accidents, not coincidences. This is an integral part of how God has constructed the history of redemption. It's the Lord's sovereignty. 
his rule of history, his infinitely exact knowledge of the future that makes typology possible. He knows what's to come, what persons, what events are at the center of human history, and so the Lord is able to weave into history all manner of anticipations to teach his people long before events come to pass. But tonight we're going to not only see how <clears throat> the year of Jubilee itself is a type, we're going to be able to see how the Lord so clearly makes this typological picture. He is shouting every few years, look, the year of Jubilee, freedom is tied to atonement. Let's pray together and seek for the Lord's help now. Our Father, we are weak in faith and we're curious about things that you tell us are secrets and we neglect the things that you reveal to us in your word. So now by your Holy Spirit, come and strengthen us in our belief in and our understanding of your holy word. Enable us to shut out the distractions of the evil one and deeply drink from your truth. We pray in the name of our mediator, our prophet, our priest, our king, even the Lord Jesus. Amen. Hope you have your Bible open. Look back to Leviticus 25 with me. And I'm going to ask you to do a deep dive with me at Leviticus 25, the passage Pastor Dodds just read. And I would dare say, I'd almost be willing to wager if I were a betting man, but I'm a Calvinist, so I don't bet. So would be willing to bet that, that many of you have really never spent a lot of time thinking about this, the year of Jubilee and its function in typology or even in Israelite life. And so I want you to look back at the passage we just read, and I want you to notice what's being taught by this glorious, this glorious year. If you look at verses 1 through 7, what's being taught there in Leviticus 25 is the Lord commands that every seventh year in Israel, there's to be no cultivation, no planting, no pruning. The farmers got the year off. The land got the year off. So year 7, year 14, year 21, year 35, 42, and 49 would be Sabbath years now notice something profound. Not only was the Sabbath to be observed weekly, where every seventh day the believer refrained from work and refrained from all of his labors and rested and enjoyed the Lord's kindness, but we see as well, the Lord says, and oh, by the way, every seventh year. And so the Sabbath principle is just sort of being barraged to Israel. Every seventh day, every seventh year is mine. Now, just to point something out, because this is who my family is, in addition to the theological truth being taught to Israel, this is simply wise agronomy. I have the great privilege to have in my family multiple academic soil scientists. Among them were Dr. George Heron, who was a professor and researcher at Kansas State, and Ray Heron, who was the county agricultural agent in Warica, Oklahoma. I wish I could report to you about their brothers, King David Heron and Emmanuel Heron. Kind of some uppity Indians here in my family. But I think my, my uncles took an interest in soil science because as young boys, they lived in the Dust Bowl of southwest Oklahoma, and they'd watch their land blow away. They had lost their farms because of over-farming trying to grow multiple cotton crops in one year until the land was completely deleted of nutrients. The Lord who knows agronomy and soil science best because he created the land, knows it's best to let the land lie fallow. Fallow ground or fallow soil is simply ground or soil that's been left 
unplanted for a period of time. Fallow land is left to rest and regenerate. And so that's what the Lord is commanding agriculturally Israel to do every seventh year. And so following the soil, if you know nothing about this, causes potassium and phosphorus from deep in the soil to rise towards the soil surface where it can be used by crops later. And other benefits of following the soil is it raises levels of carbon and nitrogen and organic matter. It improves moisture holding capacity, increases beneficial microorganisms in the soil. And ag studies have shown that a field that's been allowed to lie fallow for a year produces a significantly higher crop yield when it's planted. That's going to come in handy in just a moment when the Lord says, listen, if you do this, Instead of needing to plant every seven years, if you'll just let the land lie fallow, it'll produce as much as if you planted every year. Then look at Leviticus 25, verse 8 and following. Beginning in verse 8, we have year 50. So after the, the seven cycles of planting six years, resting on the seventh, you have in uh, verse 8 and following, the, the description of the year of Jubilee. So in year 50, after seven cycles of seven years, in the seventh month, get it? The year of Jubilee would begin. Now the signal for the kickoff of this amazing year would be, look at verse 9, a nationwide trumpet blast. And what is to happen in the year of Jubilee is stunning. Massive economic and social policies enacted. So here's what you did. If you traced the, the, the commands for the year of Jubilee, you would eat the produce from year 6, and you wouldn't plant in year 7, also known as year 49, or year 50, and then you would eat it all till year 9. And so the produce, you'd have to really chart this out, the produce from year 48 had to be abundant enough to last three years. In verses 20 through 22, God promises to supply. This is the same thing the Lord promises on a weekly basis. The Sabbath principle in action where God promises every believer, even in the new covenant, if you'll labor six days and rest on the seventh, I'll supply enough. On those six days, you won't have to work on the seventh. Don't think it'll work? Ask Chick-fil-A. Well, Sabbath principle in action as well where the Lord says, you don't need to, to plant for year 7, 14, 21, all the way through 49, or 50. It's the Sabbath principle in action where the Lord promises his people, if they'll trust him and rest on the Sabbath, he'll supply enough for them. And so Jubilee, year 50, is the exact same action. The Lord will supply all of Israel's needs for two years, year 49, it's just a regular Sabbath year, and year 50, the year of Jubilee. And so what Jubilee is, first of all, it's a call to trust God for provision. And then several other things happen. Look at verses 13 through 17. Transfer of property. All transfer of property in Israel is to be regulated in light of the year of Jubilee. You see it in verse 23 and 24. Land could not be permanently transferred, but it had to be redeemed and returned to its original owner. And then in verse 35 through 38, Israelites could not loan to fellow Israelites at interest. And then in verse 39 through 43, slaves who were fellow Israelites could not be permanently enslaved, but had to be released when the year of Jubilee came. 
And then in verse 47 through 54, Israelites who were enslaved by foreigners who lived inside the boundaries of the land had to be redeemed and released in the year of Jubilee. There's a test case for this. You could just write yourself a note to look at. It's a complicated ethical test case. In Numbers 36, there's a test case. Applying the principles of the year of Jubilee, showing a deep concern for each tribe preserving its land and inheritance. Because what you find is, if you follow the logic of the year of Jubilee, by year 50, all land reverts back to its original tribal owners. So the year of Jubilee was to be a reminder about the past. Look at verse 25, for example, in Leviticus 25, where the Lord says, The land shall not be sold forever because the land is mine. And then in verse 45, they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. And so the Lord through the year of Jubilee is reminding Israel of their past. Every 50 years for the year of Jubilee, God reminds his people that they and everything they own belong to him. But we'll see not only is it pointing towards the past and their deliverance from Israel... We're going to see that the year of Jubilee was pointing towards the future, towards a much greater freedom, a much greater redemption from all bonds and debts. Notice the prophecy. I'm going to ask you to look at two or three texts with me tonight, not working near as hard as last week. Look at Isaiah 61. And I want you to notice this prophecy that the Lord Jesus will preach and will proclaim. So this prophecy is given some 1,000 years after the institution of the year of Jubilee. Isaiah 61, Isaiah issues a prophecy. Now what we will find, I want you to stare at this prophecy in Isaiah 61. Think about where it sits. It's 1,000 years after the institution of the Jubilee principle, but it's several hundred years before the incarnation of Christ. This is a prophecy that just sat there in the canon. Israelites heard it read in the synagogue. It was there. And it's a prophecy about the Messiah who will come and bring the year of Jubilee. Look what we're told in verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim... Liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim, here it comes, the acceptable year of the Lord and the, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So remember, think of that prophecy that now sits in Israel's canon for 500 years until Jesus comes. Now look at Luke chapter 4. I'm wanting you to trace this jubilee principle with me from Leviticus 25 to Isaiah 61 and now to its, its glorious full statement in Luke 4. On a very unique and special Sabbath day of the Jewish calendar, it would have been right around the beginning of the festivities for the Day of Atonement. Jesus walks into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. Of course he would. Where would we always find Jesus on the Sabbath? In the synagogue. The synagogue system came into existence after 586 B.C. when Israel had been deported to Babylon and they were unable to go to the temple in Jerusalem. So they formed meeting places for worship wherever they lived. 
In every town where there were at least 10 adult Jewish men, a synagogue was established. There were over 400 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. And the synagogue service was simple. See if this sounds familiar to you. Psalms sung, offerings collected, prayers made with responsive amens, scripture read and expounded. Sound familiar? It should, because our new covenant worship is imitative of synagogue worship. So we're told in Luke chapter 4, it was our Lord's custom. We read in verse Luke 4, verse 16, it was his custom to be in the Lord's house with the Lord's people in public worship. Jesus loved the Sabbath and the gathering of God's people for worship. So all eyes are on upon this rabbi. He's returned to his hometown after teaching and healing south in the region of Galilee. This Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. This was his home church. He'd grown up in Nazareth in the house of a carpenter by the name of Joseph. His mother and brothers and sisters were also known throughout the town. And as Jesus entered that very familiar synagogue where no doubt he knew everybody, Nazareth was a small town, and everybody knew him. People would have leaned over and whispered about him, about the claims that he'd been making, the miracles he'd been doing. And they may have heard about what he said to the multitudes in Galilee just several miles away when Jesus extended his arms and said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And they probably pondered and said, How could he offer rest when life is filled with such toil and heartbreak? And as synagogue worship began that day, we know what the liturgy was. It was very similar to ours. It looks just like ours, and, and it was very similar every week. As worship began, the people would have turned their attention to the prayers and the singing of psalms and finally to the reading of scriptures, just like we do. And after a scripture from the law had been read, Jesus would have stood up, and we read about it in Luke 4, verse 17, and he stands to read a pre-selected, prescribed scripture from the prophets. The Isaiah scroll was handed to him, and he unrolled it and turned to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And every ear would have been listening very carefully as he read the scripture. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This isn't the best part. He stops right then after reading part of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the synagogue attendant. He sat down, as was the practice of a rabbi, before he began to teach from the text. And all eyes were riveted on him. And the people were anxiously awaiting for the sermon. Because just as we do in the synagogue, you'd have the scripture reading, then the explanation and application. So the people are are waiting for him to explain the significance of Isaiah's 500-year-old prophecy about the coming Messiah. And we read these astounding words from Luke 4, verse 21. Here's Jesus' whole sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, at first, there are plenty of people in the room who are glad for the brevity of his words. There are always people who like short sermons. People even spoke under their breath favorable affirmations about Joseph's son. 
Afterwards, Jesus speaks about his refusal to perform miracles for the fascination of his hometown and that he, like the prophets Elijah and Elisha, would be rejected by those listening. Things turned sour then. But look at Jesus' claim in Luke 4, verse 21. Today, this scripture, the scripture of Isaiah 61, has been fulfilled in your hearing. It stirred up enmity and wrath against him. And what he does is he identifies himself. He says, you all know that prophecy you've been reading out of Isaiah 61 for over the last 500 years? That's me. What was Jesus claiming to fulfill? Why were his words so scandalous? Because he's stating that he had fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. He was claiming to have ushered in the Jubilee. Not a year of jubilee, but an era of jubilee, all tied to his person and work. Now, by the way, they should have been prepared for this in Nazareth, because this isn't the only time when we hear Jesus' family talking about this. If you were to take the time, and we won't tonight, to look back to Luke chapter 1, when his mother Mary pens her glorious song, The Magnificat, she sings about all the elements of the year of Jubilee in Luke chapter 1, of God exalting the lowly and giving the hungry free and setting the, giving the hungry food and setting the captives free. So let's be exact here. What is the year of Jubilee, that institution that we, that we looked at in Leviticus 25? What is the year of Jubilee a type of? Christ's claim must be examined to better understand what he meant when he proclaimed now. Now as he stood in the synagogue in Nazareth, now is the beginning of the year of the Lord's favor, the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus was claiming to be something very profound. He was affirming that he'd come to set people free, not from agricultural slavery, but from sin. As in the Jubilee year, people were liberated from their guilt and debt and crimes. Jesus is saying, I bring all the benefits of the year of Jubilee and much more. This, by the way, was the year following the 49 sabbatical years. This was the year that the land was to lay dormant and prisoners be released and debtors forgiven. Jubilee means a year of rest, a time to rest from labor, a time for grace, and a time to celebrate freedom sent by God. It's a time of deliverance and restoration. Now, you'll remember from Leviticus 25, the date. And I want you to see this very carefully because there's, a, there's an intersection here on the Jewish calendar that I fear we don't understand or know or remember. Or maybe it's never been pointed out to us. Look at Leviticus 25 and I want you to notice what day all this kicks off. We're told in Leviticus 25.9, you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. And then you see right below it, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. This has already been told us in Leviticus 16. And so we see this direct link being made for us. This is what the day was when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth. It was two days in one. Not only was it beginning, not just the year of Jubilee, but the era of Jubilee, which goes on till now. But it was also the day of atonement. Freedom from guilt as our sin debt is paid by a spotless lamb. No mistake could be made. As Jesus stands up, everybody's saying, so is he saying what I think he's saying? 
that today is not only the Day of Atonement, today is the inauguration of the year of Jubilee. So think about how our Lord jams those two concepts together. You have the year of Jubilee where prisoners are freed. How are they freed? How are they liberated? By atonement. That's why the two happen on the same day. While the trumpets signaling the beginning of the year of Jubilee sounded throughout the land, lambs were being sacrificed to the Lord in the tabernacle and later in the temple at Jerusalem. The lamb's blood, as the, ten, as the trumpets were sounding the beginning of the year of Jubilee, lamb's blood was being sprinkled over the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. All of this foreshadowed Christ and what he would come to do. Because in both of these, the year of Jubilee and the Day of Atonement, both of these are flashing road signs saying, look at Jesus. The year of Jubilee can only be accomplished by one who can set the prisoner free. The Day of Atonement is pointing towards the bloody sacrificial death of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus. Jesus had come to deliver them and give them rest. Isaiah's prophecy had been foretold just had been fulfilled just as he foretold. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus says so, and when he quotes Isaiah 61 here in our text in Luke 4, 17, the Spirit of the Lord had been poured out upon Jesus when he stood in the Jordan River. He was anointed and affirmed to be the Messiah when the voice from heaven above spoke to Jesus, you're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus had proclaimed good news to the multitudes huddled around him on the hillsides of Galilee. He promised blessing for the poor and the oppressed. When he preached the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He had proclaimed liberty to those held captive by guilt and disease. He had touched the eyes of the blind and the head of the lepers. They were instantly, miraculously healed and restored. All their life, all of their family connection had been restored. He cast out demons from those who were oppressed and had restored them to full participation in society. So when Jesus claimed, standing in front of his hometown synagogue, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he was saying, I am your jubilee. His words were like the trumpet on the day of jubilee, announcing that the day of atonement had come. But I want you to notice something very small and this is why Bible study, not just skimming, is so important. Look back to Isaiah 61, and I want you to notice what Jesus omitted from his scripture reading in his hometown synagogue. The liturgical reading for that day was Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. But notice what Jesus omits, and it's powerful why he did. When Isaiah gave the prophecy 500 years before our Lord, he writes, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Of course, he's writing a script for Jesus to say in his hometown synagogue, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Here it comes, to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stops. If you read what he read in Luke chapter 4, he stopped the reading. So no doubt some really bright kid who had this memorized leaned over to his mom and did just like Pastor Dodds does when he skips verses and that sort of thing. And said, hey, hey, he didn't read the whole verse. 
Because look what's at the bottom of Luke 61. And the day of vengeance of our God. He did skip that. He didn't say that when he read in the synagogue. The time of liberty, deliverance promised by God had come. But the day of God's vengeance and judgment is yet to come. We live in the era of jubilee. We live in the day of deliverance. We live before the day of God's righteous wrath. This is the good news we're to preach to all nations. The truth of Christ sets prisoners free from bondage to sin. The righteous are set free from condemnation. We're told in Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Put yourself back in this text, in this era. Go back 3,400 years after the giving of the text in Leviticus. You've messed up big time. And maybe I'm talking about you tonight. You made some really bad economic decisions. You've lost your land, your freedom. You're doomed now to be a slave for the rest of your life. Years have gone by and you're still slaving away in the field. It's hot and you're tired and you've lost track of how long it's been since you've last seen your family. And then you hear a faint sound in the distance. As it gets louder, you begin to realize it's the sound of the ram's horn. And you hear the sound of trumpets and people shouting for joy. And you realize, I never thought this day would come. It's that time. The jubilee has come and your master comes and says, you're free to go. Go back to your family. It's happened so quickly that you barely have time to process. You've been freed. Now, this means not only are you a slave no longer, but you also have the land that you lost reverts back to you. The family that you had to leave reverts back to you. Just like that. Captives at the beginning of the year of Jubilee went from having no freedom, no possessions, no family, to being released, regaining their portion of the lamb, land and being reunited with their family. It was almost too good to be true. At this point, you may be thinking, well, that's really fabulous for the Israelites 3,400 years ago, but how is this relevant now? It's relevant precisely because of this. Because Jesus, preaching in the pulpit of his hometown synagogue, in Luke chapter 4, took the picture of the year of Jubilee that's painted for us in the Old Testament and told you now in the new covenant, you were captives of sin and Satan. You are a slave. You've been set free. Christ has come as the Jubilee, and this has changed everything. Your eternal home that was lost is now prepared and restored forever, Jesus will say in John 14. And the point of Christ's finished work is everything that was lost in Adam, Christ has restored and more so. Christ is our Jubilee. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you for this beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus and what he has purchased for us, redemption and release and freedom and liberty. And so, Lord, we pray that this would drive our praise, that our gratitude would know no bounds as we think on what our Lord Jesus has accomplished for us, how he is our redeemer and liberator. Loosen our tongues to sing grateful praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.